the state of the Kahabu language, the efforts to keep it going, and the obstacles that stand in its way. We'll look at how the Kahabu and another group of Ms. Pan's ancestors have often been confused, and we'll see how the Kahabu have joined up with other unrecognized groups to assert their existence. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Letitia Fan is only five foot two, but she's a remarkable woman. She's the only child in her family. Her parents put her in the Taipei American School, and then she went on to college in the USA. Her interest was in photography, but her mom was against her studying that field in college, thinking that it's not a steady job. Instead, she studied psychology and sociology because she loves asking questions about life. She also loves movies, but gave up a good job in China related to that field somewhat to come back to Taiwan to become a photographer slash videographer. She is described as this tiny woman lugging a huge camera in her hand on the set. Remember how I said she's only five foot two? Well, today I'm starting off with a kind of weird question for Letitia. Do you often hop on tables when you shoot? I usually bring a ladder around, and I would stand on the ladder because you know most of the subjects I'm shooting they're probably taller or bigger than me, so it is. It is more convenient with a ladder, and I do have to admit that sometimes some shots are better with. With some help, you know, with a male camera operator for the some of the more technical shots or long shots. So I think it's 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 good that you can recognize your strengths and weaknesses and let somebody else come and help you too when you when you need it. Do you ever encounter any problems where people kind of look down on you because you're tiny and you're a woman? For sure, I think uh, I experienced a lot of that playing basketball. Because oh. after after high school, I went to NYU, and then I would play intramurals at NYU, and sometimes just play pickup. But most of the time, it's always with guys, and I think a lot of guys, um, when they play basketball and they see they see a girl playing, they they kind of look down on that, or they they want to go easy on you, and it's not a good feeling. Even if they don't say anything, you can feel their attitude and the way they look at you, right? And, but that kind of thing always gave me the motivation to be better. Mm-hmm. Or to to prove them wrong. I think being being an underdog, sort of in my basketball career, has shaped my attitude towards a lot of things in life. Now I know that for this job um, as a freelancer photographer slash videographer, you've traveled quite a few places around the world. What was the most um, memorable thing you've ever done, or, or you know that you've ever videographed, or or place that you've been to? Um, I would have to say India uh, because my mom is Tibetan Buddhist. She's always Try to get me to to go to these places with her to the monastery, and the first time I went to India, it was 
purely out of curiosity because I've never been to India. I don't know what the monks do on a daily basis. And let alone, I've never been to a, a monastery before. So I brought my camera with me, uh, went over there, and it was a life-changing experience. And I've been going annually uh, for the last five years. Oh, with your mom? Right. Oh, wow. And, and every time I go, I would bring my camera. At first, I only took photos. Then I started doing videos. Then I brought my drone and my camera. You know, so I produced a ton of videos for them. I feel like that was one of the reasons that really propelled me into this industry because of all the the feedback I got from from the monks and all the people that went on the trip with us. Oh, so you made a documentary for them. Right. I made a lot of a short, series. Yeah, a lot of short videos documenting mm-hmm. some of the things that they were doing that I thought was interesting. Because after learning about them, I, I feel like the rest of the world doesn't really understand. When you think of a monk, you just think of meditation or chanting, but you don't really understand what they do on a daily basis or how their interaction is with each other in that community. True. So I just I just wanted more people to, to be able to see that. So every time when you went with the mom, you were the only person lugging all that equipment and the drone and everything yourself. You didn't bring a friend with you to help you out. No, but the monks would help me carry some of my equipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that is so interesting. Are you thinking of eventually becoming a director, a movie director? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I, I think sometimes in order to tell a story, you have to be the person that's sort of directing and not the, not just the person shooting, right? I think I'm waiting on a story that I really feel a connection to and passionate about that, you know, being a director, you have to have that vision and and the will, you know, for a couple of years to to make it happen. And, and right now, I think I'm still at a point where I'm uh, trying to learn more, gain more experience and make mistakes and eventually, you know, work towards my own feature film. Why wouldn't you think about writing your own script? I think I might. It's just these kind of things happen organically. It's not like I can just sit at the computer and just just write out a a full-length script. I think it comes with life experience and and maturity. You know, I'm just kind of taking it everything step by step and enjoying the process rather than obsessing over what I need to do. Do you happen to have something already kind of like about to hatch in your your mind, a a storyline? I'm sure you already have something that you thought, oh, maybe someday I'll make a movie about this or I'll make a movie about that because you're seeing so much and you're traveling so much and you're thinking so much and you're curious about so many things. I'm sure you've got some of your own ideas, right? Mm -hmm. I think right now the most practical idea for me is to make some sort of documentary that's longer length about the monastery and everything that's happening in that community because I think there is something to tell. And I mean, at the moment, we just finished a feature film that came out in theaters um, October 19th in Taiwan. Uh So that experience has taught me a lot about making something that's narrative-based because most of my experience before was commercial music video or short skits slash narrative, never something long. So so I do, I do think it's a humbling experience and you realize how much more you need to learn before you can take something on like that. So you want to start off with documentaries then? Yeah, and, and just continue to do more commercials and short films. So what's it like to work with a director? Because you're not the one directing. You kind of mm-hmm. take orders from the director to shoot this and take this angle and all that, right? What's that like? I think definitely... It's very important that you like the people you work with and you understand them because the director is the person with the vision and they kind of in their head know what the story is going to turn out to be like. And you're the person helping them realize that, 
right? You're the person that's behind the camera creating this image for them. So the communication between the director and the DP is super important. And I think I usually am friends with the director first before really working with them because I I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. Just we want to be in line, right? Otherwise, you're thinking like two different people and you can tell from the work that it's not quite there. Are you thinking of like to take some time off and take more courses? Does it occur to you that you feel like you're lacking and you need to take more classes and, you know, infiltrate yourself with more knowledge? I think for sure, I feel like there's a lot of things that I still need to learn. Um, but I really like learning from doing. Oh, so okay. I think all along my attitude towards filmmaking initially was that people are willing to pay me to make videos for them. And despite knowing that I don't have a film degree or whatnot, um, they still trust me, right? And then I make these mistakes when I'm doing the film or I, I can see where I can do better for next time. And that's really the fastest way to learn. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. There's a reason why you went to China in the first place after graduating from TAS. And and that's where you got a first job in mm-hmm. China. Yeah, how did you end up there? So after NYU, actually, I I found oh, myself. No, sorry, after NYU. Yeah, right, after okay. NYU. So I was in New York for a little bit, but I don't think I was very happy there. Um, so I decided that my future was in Asia, and I had studied abroad in Shanghai before. So I decided to go back to China to see if there's any opportunities there. And one thing led to another. I met. My uh, former boss through somebody I knew in the industry here in Taiwan, and then eventually I started working for that company. And I think the great thing about China is that it's so big. There's so many things happening, new developments. It's a growing country, whereas Taiwan is more matured.、Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of things are happening in China, and for somebody so young and just out in the world, you want to learn everything and you want to do a lot of things. You have a lot of energy. You want to hustle, right? But I think at a certain point, once you're financially independent、um, for a couple of years, then you ask yourself the question: you know, what is it you really want to do in life, and how are you going to get there? And I think when I asked myself those questions, being in Beijing for me just didn't really make sense.、Uh, my family was in Taiwan, and I just wasn't really happy living in Beijing in that environment. You know, it's a it's a tough situation with the traffic and the people and the air, a ton of things. And I decided to come back to Taiwan, and I was freelancing on the side, where I was shooting videos for my friends for fun. And then eventually, people came to us to to ask us to shoot videos for them. And so eventually, that got busier than my actual job.、Uh-huh. So I decided that it was it was time to make the leap. So that took about a year, actually. I wanted to quit my job for a year, but I was scared,、okay. um, scared for for instability and just fear for you don't know what's going to happen. And then eventually, I decided to take the leap, and I moved back to Taiwan. And it was the, definitely the best decision I've ever made for myself. I think I was much happier, even if I was making less money at the time. It was a more fulfilling job,、mm-hmm. for sure. And partly, going to India actually helped me make that decision too. Because every time you go to India and you go to these rural places like the monastery, you realize how little they have. Yet they're so much happier than you are, and it just really puts your life in perspective. Like、wow. why? Why are we fighting over petty little things at work? And why? You know, why do we obsess over all these problems? Whereas these people have so little, but they're so giving and they're so loving, 
right? And and I think I realized that I changed too after going to China. I became somebody that actually you mean didn't India or, or China. Going to China oh, changed okay. me because of the people that I was dealing with all the time. Oh, okay. So it made me more on edge and less polite and just less pleasant to be around, mm. right? And then going to India just made me realize that part that I lost. I wanted to change, and so actually right after I quit my job, I went back to India for another month to try to regroup. And then I then I did my um, photography and videography full time after after my stay in India. So I think the real question is I wasn't really happy, and I realized that you know money isn't everything. You you think um, you just want to be fulfilled, and mm-hmm. you want to be able to make a living doing something that you love. Of course, that's that's the dream, right? Right. And so photography and videography was that for me. I I was just always unsure whether or not that could work. And I think when you really set your mind to something like that and give off a positive energy, everybody comes and helps you. It, it, it really is that kind of feeling. Well, you know, um, I would say maybe for the last, can I say 10 years? Maybe five years. Everything has become more visually oriented. You know, everything people want to see and watch than listening. You know, so I think, I can't believe I'm saying this on air, but radio is like, you know, it's an outgoing medium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but um, don't you think everyone actually is a videographer these days? Everybody just wants to show themselves, show their face and show whatever they're doing, even no matter how silly it is. Right. So how do you think you make yourself stand out from all the videographers around the world? I think here's the thing, right? So sometimes... A lot of people in the industry has told me before that sometimes it's not the best technical people that get the job, but it's the people that you actually enjoy working with. And I think especially for, for something like film, when you're spending so much time with everybody, you have to work with someone that you can stand. And and so I think I try to enjoy myself as much as possible during the filmmaking process, despite the result. And And I think doing the feature film really taught me that because there's so much that's out of your control on a big project that you can only do so much. Even if the movie is not the best work possible, you're, you still enjoy the process and those connections that you made. And that's something you guys share together that kind of bond you for life. And, and this also relates back to my feeling of when I when I was playing basketball on a team because you guys go through so much together that everybody's like brothers and sisters to you. And filmmaking for me is the closest thing to that feeling. Hmm. And I think after high school, after not having a team and not going to tournaments and practice all the time, I felt like something was missing in my life because you, you don't feel that adrenaline anymore. You don't feel that kind of close bond with somebody on your team anymore. And so filmmaking really is another medium that gives me that, that high. Well, thank you so much, Leticia. This has really been a lot of fun. An eye-opener for me, too, really. As a mother, I'm proud of you, too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah, keep on doing what is right. I mean, what what makes you happy. I think that's really important. I think you've shared some really good things. Thank you again, Leticia. That's really wonderful. And good luck with what you're doing. I think you're doing great. Thanks so much. All right. I hope to hear more of your great stories in the future. Cool. Yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks, Leticia. Thank you.
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I am Natalie So. Today we're going to hear about a famous horse lover, an expert, and his son in ancient Chinese history. The spring and autumn period, which was from 770 to 476 BC in China, there was a man in the state of Qing named Sun Yang. Now he loved horses, but more than that, he was an expert about horses. He can discern their value just by looking at them. His ability to judge horses, their speed, their strength. Their personality, and much more, was uncanny. People were so amazed they gave him a nickname. His nickname was Bo Le, the God of the Horses. Now Sun Yang or Bo Le had many years of experience in evaluating horses, and he didn't want to keep his expertise to himself. He wanted to share it with the world, so he decided to write a book titled. The art of looking at horses and judging their worth. The book was illustrated and had pictures of various horses, and it showed people how to look at a horse and appraise it, what to look for in a horse to tell its value. Now Bolu also had a son, and his son thought his dad's job was pretty easy. All my father does all day is look at horses all day and judges them. What an easy job! I can do that. On top of that, I'm his son. Surely I have it in me to be a good horse appraiser. His son actually wanted to be like his father. He also wanted to prove he could do anything his father could do and better. So he got an idea. I know. I'll read my father's new book, The Art of Looking at Horses and Judging Their Worth. All I have to do is follow the instructions, and then I'll bring home a fine horse. So Bola's son went out into the fields and began to look for the best horse possible, taking his father's book with him, of course, and looking at the pictures. Let's see. My father's book says the horses should be well proportioned. A horse's face should be equal to or shorter than the length of the horse's back, hip, and shoulder. Ideally, the back of the horse should be shorter than its underline. And should be able to jump high at any time. So he went looking around for a horse that fit that description, just like the one in the picture. But he got distracted when he saw some toads hopping around. Wow! Look at these toads. Boy, can they jump! All of a sudden, he got an idea. Jump? Isn't that the requirement for a great horse? Let me take a look at this toad here. It also meets the description of an excellent horse. Its face is equal to or shorter than the length of its back, hip, and shoulder, and its back is even shorter than its underline. What do we need a horse for? This toad is perfect, and it's easier to handle too. I'm going to take this one home for my father to see. He's going to be so proud. So that's what Bola's son did. He took a toad home, thinking he found a great horse, just because it met the description in his father's book. 
Look, Father, this toad meets the exact description of the most excellent horse in your book. Aren't you proud of me for finding it? Sunyang didn't know what to say except and to suoji, which means look for a horse with the use of a picture. And that led to a Chinese idiom that is still used today. Classic Chinese phrases and idioms. There's a classic Chinese idiom, and to suoji, by picture, find horse. And it's still used today in two different ways. First, it can describe someone who does things in a very mechanical and rigid way, like the son in the story. But it can also mean to find something by following a clue. So with the first meaning, you could say, you can't just go by the book all the time and buy picture, find horse, and to suoji in your work. You have to use your brain more and be more creative to solve problems. And for the second meaning, you could say, let's and to suoji, buy picture, find horse, I bet we can find your friend just by looking at the clues we have right now. So that's another idiom story for you. And to suoji, buy picture, fine horse. It can be used to mean finding something by a clue or being way too rigid and going by the book in your thinking. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie Sell. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination 1915. Historical preservation comes in many flavors. Some people work to restore old paintings or conserve old books. There are trusts that maintain old buildings. And in Taiwan, there are even those devoted to preserving old tiles. In the early 20th century, colorfully painted tiles were a status symbol in some parts of Asia, above all in Taiwan. Over the past few decades, though, many of the homes that once proudly sported these tiles have faced demolition. The buildings may be beyond saving, but the tiles, at least, can be rescued. For around 20 years, one group of volunteers has been saving tiles from around Taiwan. In 2015, they even opened a museum the Museum of Ancient Taiwan Tiles. 
Mr. Xu is one of these volunteers. He's here to introduce these tiles and explain what it was that got him hooked on them. Mr. Xu explains that pattern tiles were hugely popular between 1915 and 1935. People would put them on their walls, and especially near their roofs, where they were most visible and could make the boldest impression. Unlike in the West, these kinds of tiles were not used to cover a whole surface. Instead, they were often placed alone, as accent pieces. They were sometimes also embedded into furniture. This kind of tile was European in origin, and it first came to Asia as a Western trade item. In Singapore and Malaysia, where they were also popular, a fair number of tiles did actually come from Europe. But during the tile craze, Taiwan was under the rule of Japan, then a growing industrial power. Japanese factories provided a still largely agricultural Taiwan with 95% of the tiles its wealthy classes demanded. In Japan itself, Mr. Xu says, the traditional wooden buildings that were still quite common were poorly suited for inlaid tiles. But in Taiwan, where brick and western-style buildings had become common, the market for tiles was there. Mr. Xu says the start of the craze in 1915 was no coincidence. At this point, Taiwan had been a Japanese colony for 20 years, and the last major resistance to colonization had ended. Mr. Xu says growing stability brought a building boom, which is what set off Taiwan's tile boom. The reason decorating with these tiles was such an act of conspicuous consumption had to do with the costs involved. Of course, as we've said, the tiles themselves were mass-produced in factories. But at the time, there was no way to paint the tiles by machine. Every single tile had to be painted by hand. This made each one a little work of art, even if the same designs were reproduced over and over again. Each tile cost a small fortune. The Japanese factories knew the Taiwan market well. While many tiles mimicked the original European designs, others catered specifically to the tastes of Taiwan's wealthy. Fruit is a common theme. That might not seem so special to us, but those who ordered these tiles would have known that certain fruits are loaded with symbolism. Seed-filled pomegranates and grapes, for instance, expressed a wish for many children and grandchildren. Peaches are traditional shorthand for long life, and the sound of the word for apple suggests the word for safe and sound. This symbolic language went beyond fruit, of course. For instance, images of bats were popular, because the word for bat includes a syllable that sounds like good fortune. Whether peaches or bats or bananas, the tiles came in vivid colors. The workmanship was so good that they haven't faded even after a century of exposure to the elements. The tiles were so expensive that even the well-off might only be able to afford a few. They might be used sparingly and strategically to draw attention to certain features. Mr. Xu says every home with these tiles used them in a unique way, making each of the homes that use them a work of art in itself. You might imagine that the end of the craze around 1935 was the result of changing tastes. But Mr. Xu says that's not what happened at all. 
As the 1930s went on, both Japan and Europe moved towards war. The tiles were expensive, labor-intensive, and difficult to make, all traits that didn't quite fit the times. Factories in both Japan and Europe gradually stopped making them, and none of them ever started production back up again. Almost all the tiles in the Tile Museum come from old buildings that are about to be torn down. Some stand in the way of urban restructuring projects, and others are simply sold off by owners to developers. Mr. Xu notes how much the price of land in Taiwan has jumped in the past few decades. The situation in Taiwan is much different from that in Singapore and Malaysia, where many of the buildings that feature these tiles are protected. Once every month or two, the volunteer tile rescue team gets a call to come in and save the tiles from yet another old building about to meet a wrecking ball. They bring in specialist equipment like water jet cutters and cranes to get the job done. A team of six to seven workers can take several days to extract all the tiles from the walls and roofs of a home. One recent case involved rescuing 500. But these tiles are being lost all the time. For every house the volunteers get to, there are many they cannot reach, sometimes because property owners they reach out to just aren't interested. Once the tiles are safely out, the volunteers spend around a month just removing the cement from the back of them. After that, around two more months are spent removing the mold from the surface. Mold can obscure the colors, and Mr. Xu says that some tiles come back completely blackened with it. He says it took the volunteers around two years to work out how to get the mold off without damaging the design. And now with techniques like this, they may be the only group in Taiwan that can do this kind of restoration work. In addition to being difficult, the rescue of these tiles is expensive. Just getting the tiles out from a single home can cost more than 9,000 US dollars. Still, the volunteers are generous. Their work is so specialized that they sometimes get calls from homeowners whose homes aren't being demolished, but who just need some work done on their tiles. Though it doesn't add to their collection, the volunteers will take these cases on for free, extracting the tiles, fixing them up, and sending them back when the job is done. How did these volunteers get into this line of work, and what motivates them? Mr. Xu shares his own story. While at university, he and his girlfriend enjoyed photographing old buildings with a group of friends. It happened that his girlfriend's family owned one of the old buildings with tiles on it, but no one was quite sure why they were there or what they were supposed to be. This sparked a research project, which morphed into an appreciation for these little works of art. Mr. Xu and his friends wanted to preserve these tiles, but there wasn't much they could do until they'd graduated and got jobs. Now Mr. Xu and his fellow volunteers are working people. Most still have day jobs, many, as it happens, working as engineers in Taiwan's tech industry. Still, while rescuing these tiles may be a labor of love, you can hardly call these volunteers amateurs. The groups put together a collection of over 5,000 rescued tiles, 
and in 2015, after decades of work, they moved their collection into a full-time home, a historic building in the southern city of Jiayi. There, over 1,500 tiles from the collection are on display, with guides on hand to introduce their history and their motifs. The museum has also taken its collection on the road, with a joint display taking place this month in a Japanese museum. Though the museum can't save all of Taiwan's fine old homes, it can at least preserve small pieces of them and bring a corner of Taiwan's heritage to the world. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Much like the pieces that we will brought in Taiwan are from the traditional dances in, in Haiti. Like we have the we have the rara, we have the um, um, rhythm and variation, which is a, a, a variation of many 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 Asian rhythm like Igbo, um, Africa, um, Akumba. Hello and welcome to this week's online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Haitian dancer, choreographer Jean-Rone Delsoin and members of Compagnie de Dong's Jean-Rone Delsoin, or in short, COJRD, recently visited Taiwan to perform at the Nanying International Folklore Festival in Tainan, southern Taiwan. Jean-Rone Delsoin talks about his career and his performance in Taiwan, adding that he hopes to bring the richness of Haitian dance to the Taiwanese audience. And joining us on the show today is Mr. Jean-Horné Delsoin, founder of COJRD in Haiti. And you may also watch our interview in video on our website, as well as a segment of the performance by COJRD. Mr. Jean-Horné Delsoin, I know that you're in Taiwan this time to take part in the Nanying International Folklore Festival in southern Taiwan in Tainan City. Mm-hmm. Is this your first performance in Taiwan? Yes. Anyway, we are happy to be here, the entire company and myself, uh, for the first time. Joining the Nanyang, this is a kind of a very famous um, dance festival. We're happy to be here and um, to with among other countries. So uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to to be part of such wonderful um, journey. So what kind of dance uh, do you hope to bring to our audience in Taiwan? It, that's, a, that's, a, that's a folklore festival. So most likely we use drums as a background and then most likely the pieces that we, we brought in Taiwan are from the traditional dances in, in Haiti. Like we have, the, we have the rara, we have the um, rhythm and variation, which is a, a, a variation of many, many, many Asian rhythm like Igbo, um, Africa, um, Akumba, and we have another piece called um, Tradition itself. It's, uh, it's another great one with um, Yan Valu, Petro, and all of such wonderful rhythm from uh, traditional dances in Haiti. So how many um, dances will you be performing? We actually brought with me in my repertoire like four different choreographies. What inspired you to choreograph all these dances, especially the dances for the performance at Nanyang 
uh, International Folklore Festival? Actually, we chose we chose what we came here to do from our repertory because this is a very long repertory. It's a repertory, a repertory with like 50 pieces in, in, in total. And then me as a very open-minded um, choreographer, I had other people, uh, pieces in my repertory as well. So, um, yeah, to, to, to choose a piece of maybe two, three, four to come here, it was not difficult because we were trying to sell as much as possible the beauty of our country. So it was very a beautiful thing for me to say, oh, this is, I think, what Taiwan is expecting from us. So that's why we, we decided to choose this um, for four um, choreographers. And your dance has been always regarded as cross-boundary dance. Can you talk about this concept? The dance is a very universal language. I never wanted to limit dance in one particular region and one particular country. Like, I think that the, the most important thing for dance is to be seen. So it's to cross... Um, I always use that word, frontier, so it doesn't have any limit. So he has to go from 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 America to to Asia, from Asia to Europe. You know that that that, that that's how I conceive my my dancing. So the concept is cross the frontiers, and I know you also founded uh, John Hornet the Swan Dance Center, and mm-hmm. now there's a project called uh, Campagne de Danse Jean Hornet the Swan, or in short, C O J R D. Now, can you tell us the the founding of this? dance? All right. I have uh, in the past uh, school with two other partners. So uh, we decided to move um, separately. And then I remember talking to my older brother who, and I told him, I do not have a name for my new school. And he said, unfortunately for you, you have a name in dance, in the world of dance. Why don't you call it your name? So I decided to go with um, Jean-Rony Dance Center. So it's a school where the kids and the adults come and learn many, many um, different forms, many, many techniques. Like uh, we do anything like jazz, modern, contemporary, Haitian traditional dances, ballroom, classical, jazz, and all that. That's a, that's a, that's a center that people, want, want, if they want to learn to dance, they, they come to us to learn to dance. And the company is no longer a project. It has been a project when I started the dance center. So it's a company now for a long time. It's a dance company. So many of the dancers come from my school. Some of them be auditioned for the company. Some of them are the teachers of the schools. So like I have with me many, many um, dance teachers um, in, in Taiwan with me. You're listening to On The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong and today I'm speaking with a famous Haitian dancer, choreographer, Jean Hornet Delph Song, the founder of COJRD in Haiti. You mentioned earlier your dance combines modern mm-hmm. uh, jazz and contemporary dance techniques. Uh, could you also elaborate on that? Um, that's, uh, as, I, as, I, as I just said to you, we have many dance forms at the school. So as a choreographer, I, I like touching other stuff. I'm very curious about, particular, very curious about things. If I'm doing 
uh, probably these homes, I might say this is for me too uh, modern, for example, or this is maybe too jazzy. I'd like to go somewhere else. So that's why, that's why when you watch my dancing, my dancers on stage or my choreographies, you always say that this is, this is the not typical uh, thing. This guy is very picky about what he does. He's probably going to go from sushi to, um, you know, <laughs> different things. So that, that, that's, that, that's how I explain it. I can explain that. That's yeah. a very nice way of trying to compare, uh, you know, jazz, uh, contemporary dance, and so on and so forth. But I, I know that you have devoted yourself to uh, more than 30 years of service in dance performance and also in instruction. So how did you start in the very beginning back to, say, more than 30 years ago? Oops. Yeah, <laughs> very nice questions. Um... Growing up in a country in a country like Haiti, and then you know your father. My father used to be an actor. You know, I was raised in a family where art was in the center of everything that we do. I I went to a Catholic school, and there I've learned to do beautiful things like singing in the choir and do stuff and stuff. And then. And I always said to myself, I really need to do something with my body. Started with football and then you go to volleyball. And I decided one day that I need to, to take dance seriously because in, I was the one in all the parties and in the family to, to I was the first one to be, to be in the center of you know, the, the, the room to start dancing. And like, this guy is very, very talented. And then I have to take that seriously. So one day I decided to call a friend and said, I'd say, why don't you take me to a dance school? So I get there, you know, like in the, the mentality for men to wear tights and start ballet was not an easy thing. So I decided, so I'm going to go there and do jazz, for example. Uh, when I get there, she said, oh, I can give you a scholarship. The, the, the lady said, I can give you a scholarship if you want to do ballet because we're looking for men in this country to be a beautiful ballet dancer as in any other country. So I decided to start to take it seriously and I started dancing and after that I'm like, okay, where am I going with my life? And then one day my father said to me, you still have your dance bag every day with you. I, I want to know what's going on. I said, if I want to become a dancer, so I just want you to be able to put bread on your table. That's all. But your persistence, your perseverance has actually proven that you're right because you know, it has put you on the international stage, showing that you're a very talented dancer. I know that you have also performed in Kennedy Center in, in New York. And uh, now, of course, here in Taiwan, and you have performed actually in many different countries in the world. Now, looking back on that, mm -hmm. I'm sure that you would say, I made the right choice, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, basically, yeah. You have to follow your, your heart. You have to follow your dreams. Follow your instincts. It's, it's very important. I didn't know, I just, I didn't, I didn't take a road. I just started walking and then I created a road for myself. And I think that's, that's something very important. And then why you, 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 you're talking about my 31 years in dance service? I was with all my dancers and my musicians the other night at the, at the welcome party. And then I realized, oh, today is October 5th. This is actually my 31st years in dance service, and look where I am, among a lot of dancers, among a lot of um, countries, with performers for a dance festival. That was a lovely way of celebrating. I didn't even want to say anything to anybody, but deep inside I was really, really, really relieved, happy to be 
in Taiwan 31 years after, you know, later. <laughs> yeah, don't forget that even, I mean, when you started, uh, say 31 years ago, the society was not that liberal. No. And you also incorporate uh, Haitian dance uh, into your choreographies. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that as well? Um, that as yeah, well? I mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Um, I remember a, a, a young dancer said to us in a conversation that when you want the thing, what you're doing, like what, what you choreograph, when you want it to be different, you always want to try to add one movement from the traditional dances. I think that was not what we were trying to do. It's because when you have a product, you know it's a beautiful thing, and then everybody will take it very in a very, I don't know how to say that, in a very different way, like this is, or what you think it is, is not that, it's not worth that much. So as a, as a dancer who has a chance to do other dance form, so I said to myself, if I want Haiti to look beautiful, we're not going, I'm not going to sell only the Haitian traditional dances. I will probably sell something that people will say, oh, this is what he's been doing. He's combining Haitian traditional dances with other techniques. So I think with that particular, with that particular vision, I can say one day I can come back here and create a beautiful piece for, for, for a company in Taiwan. But you have also created uh, more than 50 works right now. Your creations include Manhattan Jazz, Dusha Free, Heritage, Impulse, and so on and so forth. What, which one is your favorite? Oh my God, this is <laughs> difficult. This is difficult to say. Um, as, a as a choreographer, I like, when, if I want to talk about joy, celebration, life, um, vibration, everything, I would probably say, Meraga, it's, it's a beautiful piece. And I brought that here in, 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 in Taiwan for the festival. But uh, you, have piece, you have pieces that touches you more than another one. Because you have, when you're created, when you're, when you're created a, a piece, you like, it depends on what's going on in your life in that particular moment. If you're happy or if you're unhappy. If everything goes well in your life or if things are really going in a bad direction. So um, everything that you just mentioned to me, it's, it's about, uh, it's about, it was about like one particular day and I am in dance studio with my dancers and I said, mm, yeah, I think this music is fabulous. I need to do something about it. Sometimes a choreographer like me, you have ideas and you're looking for music. You're looking for, for bodies to shape your work. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's because the music gets, gets to you and you want to express something. I think among all these pieces, I might say that, you know, um, they are all my babies and I love them very much. <laughs> So we hope that we can cross that frontier so there's no boundary either no that boundary. the Haitian dance or the Taiwanese dance. Absolutely. And we've been joined in a studio today by Mr. Jean Horné de Swan, founder of Jean Horné de Swan Dance Center, as well as a company project now called the Company de Dance Jean Horné de Swan or COJRD.
And that's it for this week's On The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. And you may also watch our interview on the website in video as well as a segment of the performance by COJRD Dancers. Thank you for listening. I'm Carlson Wong and I'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.